Well, good evening again. Uh, welcome to Wednesday Night Community. Um, this is one of those, like, I, I hate asking this question, but anyone show up last Wednesday night? I know, like, one of our band members did. They were saying earlier, they were like, man, I showed up to play, and the parking lot was empty. <laughs> so um, we, we canceled due to, due to the weather, so I hope you guys got that. I, I thought this might be a good moment to just kind of say, plan for the future. Okay, let's plan. Let's, let's like make an agreement. In the future, if it's at all cold, if it's, if it's like icy out, jump onto the website. Uh, if you get like email, if you get the newsletter, that, uh, do you guys get Pastor Derry's newsletter? Like check your email. Okay, yeah, yeah, one just came out to you. Check your email, jump on the website. Like look, because I, I feel so bad. I hate it when I hear someone comes to church on Wednesday and we're closed. I just, I feel guilty for like the rest of the week. So help my guilt and please check because I just, I feel awful when I hear that. But um, we did, and I don't know if it was best, you know, we make the call in the morning and I always hate making that call because I'm like, ah. Oh. But I just, last year we had someone who was here on a Wednesday night and they fell in the parking lot and like damaged their hip. And I mean, it was just horrible. So I was like, I'd, I'd just rather not risk it. So we canceled. So sorry if that was an inconvenience at all for you guys. Because of that though, the bummer part is um, we, ha we have to at least cut one week or combine or something like that. And uh, next week I had invited, I think I mentioned to you guys last week maybe or two weeks ago, that I invited a, a former professor of mine from Denver Seminary. His name is uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar. This guy is like the nerd of nerds. I mean, I'm serious. He is, he's just a walking brain. He's, he's just an unbelievable guy. And he's had a long, lustrous career. He's kind of nearing the end of it. Um, and uh, I, I had reached out to him at the beginning of this series, and I just said, hey, Dr. Blomberg, like, I, I, I will have you teach on anything. I don't care, but would you come up? And I said, but what I would love for you to teach on is the resurrection. That's, uh, he, he was listed in Time Magazine like a decade ago. As one of the, he was the uh, the leading evangelical scholar on historical Jesus research in the world, so yeah, super nerd, right? He's awesome. I love Dr. Blomberg. He's he's honestly one of my heroes. So I hope that you'll come next week. Maybe invite someone else to come as well. But because of that, he was he was teaching on like we had two more weeks before he was teaching, and so I was like, okay, so what do I cut out? And um, one of the things that I like about this series is it forces us to look at and study and dig into things that maybe wouldn't be your default topics to look at. You know what I mean by that? Like, um, you know, tonight we're doing this uh, message, if you have a bulletin, on um, Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I've never preached a message on the virgin birth before, right? I don't think I've ever heard a message I said that to someone earlier tonight in the room. I'm like, well, that's because you didn't grow up Catholic. And I said, okay, that's fair. That's fair. But I've never heard a message on, on the virgin birth or anything. And, and the next topic um, is the one we're going to skip. And I was telling a friend of mine that this week, and he goes, you know that's like the most important part of the creed, right? Uh, which it's that he, was, that, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, um, uh, dead and buried. And I'm like, yeah, that is pretty important. But we have Good Friday coming up, and I will be teaching on that. And we, we do tend to uh, talk about that. That is the center of our faith, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I have to feel like I've got to preface it to be like, we're not skipping that for any weird theological reasons. 
Um, we're skipping that because we're kind of forcing ourselves to theological symmetry. You know what I mean by that? Symmetry is well-balanced, and oftentimes there are portions of Scripture that, for me, I don't know if you're this way, I don't tend to engage with a lot because it's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, or like, ah, oh, that's kind of weird. Don't want to look at that. I'm comfortable with this. I'll look at that. And so I kind of like doing this because it forces theological symmetry in my life and, and in us. So that is the reason for that. I believe in the bodily death of Jesus. I'm just not going to teach on it in this series. Are you okay with that? Is that all right? You, are you with me? Okay. Okay. Good. <clears throat> so, so this week we're, we're, we're looking at this um, statement that comes in the, in the creed that Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, um, I'm not going to teach a lot tonight about the Holy Spirit because we have a week coming up here where there's a whole week on the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're going to focus more on the virgin birth and, and look at that. So let's do this. Read with me Luke chapter 1. Um, fast forward 332 days to Christmas time, okay, because this is when we read this passage all the time. Luke chapter 1, verse 20. I don't know if it's that's the exact right day that was, I guess. Luke 1, 26 through 38, we read this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And then her question back to him, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And then Mary's response, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Most people today, I would suggest, when, when we, as modernists, read this passage, uh, this, well, or at least the statement in the creed, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that we, we interpret it in light of modern biology, right? Like, that's, just wh that's where I go in my mind. I'm, I'm immediately trying to work out, like, okay, biologically, like, how did that all shake out? You know what I mean? Like, how did, how did, that, how did that happen? And, of course, we know conception comes from two cells, one from the father, one from the mother, and, and the genes in, in the child are a combination from both parents, right? And they determine the inherent qualities of the person that's born, so they will have half 
of the fathers and half of the mothers. And so many modernists read this creed and they go, oh, I get, I get what the creed is saying. I get what scripture is saying, that Jesus must be half divine, right, the Holy Spirit, and half human from Mary. That, that, that must be what it's trying to affirm. But see, the ancients had a very different conception of um, conception. A very different concept of conception, I guess I should say. Here's, here, here's the ancient idea in their mind when they under, how they understood conception. They understood that it was basically, there was like the father's seed was, was planted in the mother's womb, much like a grain of uh, wheat would be planted in the ground. And so the way that you would explain, well, how is it that the offspring has traits of the mother? It would be understood in the same way that, well, it's, it's like how soil influences a plant that, that grows out of it. But it's, it's not that a woman would contribute an ovum. That's, that's not in the mind of the ancient person. But the, the womb would be the thing that would nourish the seed. It would be the mold in which the, the seed grows up. Are you with me on that? That's, that's sort of the ancient concept here. So the creed, I would suggest to you, and we have to kind of not think as modernists for a second, the creed is not about the biological mechanism, okay? It's not about the, the, the I want to understand how the origin of it happened. Like, I want to understand the biology. That's not what the ancients were saying when they were affirming what Scripture is teaching about the virgin birth. Now, let me just address maybe a couple quick um, places that people go. I don't know if you'd say objections, but oftentimes, you know, people maybe are a bit uncomfortable with this, or they think, well, this seems silly. And, and so they kind of try to explain it away, and they say, well, this, just, this isn't really needed. You know, I could kind of do away with, with this concept. And some of the thinking goes like this. Well, maybe this is kind of an ad hoc argument, the whole virgin birth, meaning you've got a young woman who has unwed pregnancy, okay? A teenage pregnant mom, no husband. Okay, we need to come up with a solution for that. Oh, it was virgin born, Holy Spirit kind of thing. Okay, so maybe it's like an ad hoc argument. Or, or maybe sometimes people will say, I think what's going on is these later followers of Jesus wanted some pizzazz around it, right? Like, you know, we can't have fireworks because those aren't invented yet, but, but let's have something cool around the birth, and then it'll seem kind of like jazzy, like, ooh, that's shiny, that's cool, I like that. So let's, kinda, let's just kind of make up some miracle, right? That, that, that's not needed because we know how babies are formed, a man and a woman, and that's probably what happened, but let's make it kind of jazzy, right? That's kind of the idea going on here. But I would suggest both of those kinds of movements, because this seems weird, miss the point. There's actually something going on here that has ancient roots that once we understand it, and I want to kind of like unfold it tonight, I want to go back and look at something that leads up to this, that when we get back up to this, all of a sudden you're going to go, oh, oh, that's like much deeper and bigger than I understood, which makes sense because I'm a modernist. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get what is going on here as God is acting in history. And so here's what I want to suggest to you. The purpose of these words in the creed, which are reflective of the words here in Scripture, are not to explain Jesus' biological origin primarily. Instead, it's to make two central claims about the absolute unique identity of Jesus. And that is, number one, Jesus' birth was something special. Okay? 
write down the word special. That's the key word. Jesus' birth is something utterly unique or special. Here's, Here's what I mean by that. If you start on like page one of the Bible and you just start reading, you're gonna come across a thread that you're gonna find again and again and again. And it's, it's a theme, and if you wanna write this phrase down, it's called the, the theme of the barren woman. And again, we'll get there, but, but put, store that away, maybe write it down. The theme of the barren woman. And here's the point. I'll, I'll kind of explain it to you, and then we'll kind of walk through it, and hopefully we'll start to see it, and then you're going to see something building like to a crescendo that'll start to make a lot more sense to you. But here's, here's the idea. In the Old Testament, we read repeatedly, like again and again and again, anytime a child is needed to continue the line of the patriarchs, and we'll talk about what that is in a, in a minute here, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the ancients, anytime there was a child needed to continue the, the lineage of the patriarchs um, or to perform a special task, and it was usually like a salvific task, meaning some sort of task of fixing a deep tragedy, or, 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 or a deep danger in the world. Anytime someone was needed, there, we, we see this idea that the child was, was the result of God's special actions. And, you know, we might kind of start to see why that is the case, but we get these repeated and kind of building themes, and it starts on page three, and we'll go there right now. These building themes of the barren woman who conceives by divine intervention, okay? So let's real quickly, and we're gonna like run through some texts fast. We're not gonna spend a lot of time there, but it's gonna be kind of a lot of them. So um, if you have your Bibles open or turned on or whatever, Genesis 1.27. I wanna read for you Genesis 1.27, and here's what I want you to start looking for. And if, if it's like underlining it or writing down, look for the, the seed concept, okay? You with me? S-E-E-D. Look, look for seed, or the concept somewhere built into it, okay? Genesis 1, through 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them. Now, Hebrew scholars will, will note this is God's first commandment, and this is important. The very first commandment that God gave to humanity is right here. Be fruitful. Is that a seed word? Think about, think about fruit. What's inside fruit? How does fruit perpetuate? <laughs> seed, okay? So this, this is the start of it right here. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. The key to fulfilling God's creation mandate in Genesis 1 and 2 is to be fruitful. A seed, somehow, a seed is going to be necessary to fulfill God's creation mandate. Now, what we find out here, we're going to jump to chapter 3, page 3 real quickly. Humanity says, I'm not going to rule. I'm going to rule, but I'm not going to rule the way you want me to do it. I'm I'm going to set up my own little mini kingdom, and I'm going to rule the way I want to rule. And so Genesis 3, 14 and 15, humanity rebels, sets up their own way of ruling in God's world. 
and then this is the consequence, and we're jumping right into the middle of it. There's the, if you've read the story, there is this serpent who appears in the story and deceives them. And in verse 14, we read, So the Lord God said to the serpent who had deceived them, our first parents, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And here it is. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your, what's the word? Yeah, that's the word seed. We've translated into English as offspring. It's seed. That's the word that he's using there. Between your seed and her seed, right? He, which is her seed, will crush your head and you will strike his, who's his? The seed. You will strike his. It's, it's this mutual death blow, right, to one another. So the seed of the woman, here's the point. The seed of the woman, we got to get this before we can go on, will be absolutely instrumental in crushing the snake. The seed is going to be the snake crusher. And so we're, we're kind of wondering, okay, who's that going to be? What's that going to be like? Any other details, God? Like, nope. <laughs> and then just roll on with, with the story. And then from page four on, it's this downward spiral of humanity with, here's what it looks like to set up your own kingdom. And it's just chaos. It's absolute chaos. It's like cancer to this, to this world. And so God, through, through the flood, wipes it out and starts all over in Noah. And then right away we see first day, he's on, just about the first day, he's on dry ground. He's just as screwed up as everyone else. He's just as broken. And so the story continues to kind of spiral out. And we've got the Tower of Babel. And it's just like, man, things are just spiraling and spiraling. It's broken. And then God does something in the 12th chapter of Genesis that we read about. God selects one man, one guy, this guy named Abram. And he says this, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, because he lived like way off in the east. Okay, Ur of the Chaldees, we read. Leave your people and your father's house, and I will show you a land. He says, I will make you into a, what's the word there, the phrase? into a great nation. Now, that might seem normal, but there's a problem <laughs> that we'll reach here in a second. But that should signal something in your mind. I will bless you, I will make your name great, I will be a, uh, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth uh, will be blessed through you. Abraham obeys God, he leaves, and he goes to modern-day Israel-Palestine area, the, what we call in the Old Testament Canaan. Okay? And then this, this continued connection with Abraham is rolled out. Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are. Look to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your... Guess what word it is? Seed. I will give to you. And this should be a hyperlink <laughs> in your mind. Oh, oh, I've heard that word before. Oh, yeah, that was page three, right? Like these are all hyperlinks. These are like echoes. Your mind should be going back to that. I will give it to your seed forever. I will make your seed like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your seed could be counted. What should your mind be going back to? What should your mind be going back to right now? Page three. 
the prom, the vague, weird, kind of kooky, odd, crush, snake crusher promise. This idea. Genesis 15, 1 through 6, we move forward a little bit. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And here's the problem. Here's why all of this stuff doesn't make any sense. But Abraham said, uh, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I am, oh man, I am seedless. <laughs> this great thing you're talking about, uh, the hyperlink to page three, that's really cool. Problem is, I have no seed. And the, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. There's no seed there. So uh, a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up into the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall be your seed. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, again, this is awesome. Wow, this is wonderful. Problem is, he's a super old dude. His wife is extremely old. Uh, the apostle Paul in the New Testament writes comments on this, and he says, um, their bodies were as good as dead. <laughs> like, that's what Paul says, the apostle. He's like, they were as good as dead. It, this, this was pointless. There's death there. There's no seed coming out of a dead plant. Okay, You cannot be fruitful and multiply when it is a dry stump and there is nothing there. They are absolutely dead. Abraham was 99 before there was any seed. Sarah was 90 years old before there was any seed. Do you, are you seeing the model emerge? Because remember I said it's a theme of the barren. Are you seeing this? It's, it's, it's like starting to come out of the water and you're starting to see a model. Okay, It's just one. It's a one-off. Okay, it's a one-off thing. Genesis 25, 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham. His son, oh, the seed, wonderful, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean, and Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on her behalf, this is Rebekah, because she was, what? Yeah, she's dead. No child. Oh, this is starting to sound familiar. We just got through this. But then we read, the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant, and that's Jacob. So what did it take for this ancient promise to continue? Here's, here, here's what we're starting to see. What does it take for this ancient promise from page three, a seed, what did it take for it to continue? A special act of God that didn't have anything to do with the life inside the person. Are you following that? There's no life inside the person. These, these are, again, as Paul says, good, good is dead. So Abraham, Sarah, we have this. Isaac, Rebekah. Then it comes to the story of Jacob, who's, he, remember, he's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. And guess, guess, you'll never guess, guess what happens when Jacob marries Rachel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, surprise, surprise. She can't have a child. Her, her, her womb is barren. It's empty. Genesis 30, 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, and he opened her womb to conceive. Jacob and Rachel 
result in this guy named Joseph. Remember Joseph and the coat of many colors and all the brothers? She, he was the first son of these two right here. And what did Joseph do? He, he saved his family and he saved the Mediterranean world in a time of famine and then they find their place in Egypt. Are you seeing what the author of Genesis is trying to get you to see? He wants you to see something growing. He wants you to see a pattern. He wants you to see something in the nature of humanity and how God interacts with what's wrong in humanity. And so this this theme of the barren woman, as we said, it's this idea that a child is needed to continue the line of the patriarchs and they're gonna be the solution to the promise of of the snake crusher. And that this child is the result of God's special actions. And so this this theme of the barren woman, it it goes on also when like a special task needs needs to be performed. Um, How about the character Samson? Do you remember Samson? Strong guy, book of Judges. Guess what was the deal with his parents, his mom? Barren woman, right? Israel is under oppression by the Philistines, they're gonna be crushed, wiped out. Um, you, you might think of the, uh, the person of Samuel, the judge, or excuse me, not the judge, the priest, Samuel. Um, also Israel is under oppression by the Philistines, and, and this woman, Hannah, goes to the temple, and she's praying, and why is she crying and weeping? <laughs> she's a barren woman. It's the theme of the barren woman. And God opens her womb and and Samuel is born and he becomes the priest and he actually leads Israel until King Saul comes. And we, we see this go just, it runs through. And then we get to the first pages of the New Testament, the very first pages. And do you know who the first barren woman is that we meet? Elizabeth and her, her husband, Zachariah. And they're this saintly old couple. Boy, that sounds familiar. Bodies are as good as dead. <laughs> He's serving in the temple. They obey all the commands of the Lord. But there's one problem. Luke 1, 7, Luke tells us, he wants us to see. Luke is underscoring this. He wants us to see the theme. Luke 1, 7, it says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. <laughs> oh, that's a hyperlink. I remember that. I saw that before. I saw that before. And so Zechariah, he, he's serving in the sanctuary of the temple. This is like his one time to have this task. And he has this vision, and he's told that his barren wife is going to conceive, and this, this child is going to have a special place in God's plan, Luke 1.15, quote, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then like you fast forward like six months and she's pregnant and it's kind of it's getting you know, kind of close to the end of her pregnancy. And then we find out that her cousin, her cousin also is, is visited by someone and told she's gonna conceive. But this one's different than every other one before. Luke 1, 32. This um, angel appears to Mary and says, this seed in you, will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now that's, if you remember, we talked about this a while ago, that's language that was reserved for 
David's sons, Solomon, and that, that God said, I'm gonna treat him like my son. Remember that? He, he will be called the son of the most high. This is kingly language is the point. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you see what Luke is trying to get you to see here when we read you know, the Christmas story? Luke is saying Jesus, he's the culmination of the hope of Israel through the line of the patriarchs. There's always this risk. There's always one seed. Jesus is the culmination of every single one of those seeds that was in question, in doubt, and yet through God's miraculous activity, there's a seed, there's a child. And he's also saying Mary is the culmination of the theme of the barren woman who conceives by divine intervention. And then there's this really interesting thing. Luke's trying to get you to see this too. Remember Mary's song? If, if, you know, again, if you've looked at this text before, Mary afterwards says, you know, let it be you know, to me as you say. And then Luke puts on her lips these, the, the, this song that she sings. And what's so fascinating is this song is patterned after Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when she heard she was going to have Samuel, she sings this. And Mary is mimicking her song. And she says things like this, Luke 1, 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. That's, that's, that's what Hannah said. But has lifted up the humble. He has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Listen, listen to the words of uh, historian Justo Gonzalez. He writes, For the early Christians, the virgin birth was simply the culmination of the ancient theme of the barren woman who conceives. What is intended by it is not to explain Jesus' biological origin, but rather to make it plain that just as in past times God raised leaders for Israel out of a barren woman who conceived by divine intervention, now the barren woman par excellence, the virgin, conceived by divine intervention by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the child she will bear will be not only exceptional, but unequaled, the son of the Most High, in whose kingdom will have no end. I believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the creed says, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, unfortunately, soon, remember we talked about this creed, it's written in the second century, the early on, the old Roman creed, and it, and it, it develops over time, and, and unfortunately what happens is the theme of this, I mean, like, like that's what they're grasping, they're saying Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, like has this deep, long theological you know, tradition in, in, in the Old Testament, right? It's a culmination of it. Over time, though, the emphasis shifted from Jesus' unique identity to Mary's virginity. Like, that's the cool part. It's the fact that she was a virgin. That's the, that's the wow. Not this unique identity in who Jesus was. <clears throat> and so what you have over time is this idea that these followers of Jesus, well-meaning, begin to think, well, we need to safeguard her virginity because that's the cool part. So she, 
she, she must have been a virgin her whole life. And so there's the development of, the, of this idea of, of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Ambrose of Milan uh, was the teacher of St. Augustine. You've probably heard the name St. Augustine anyway. St. Augustine's a great mind, great thinker of the early church. And even as, as far back as Augustine's teacher, like in the mid to late 300s, he defended the perpetual virginity of Mary, saying, well, Mary prefigures the church. And so for, for the church to be holy, it can't be defiled. And so Mary must have never been defiled. And of course, in this mindset, there's the idea that sexuality is kind of a defiling thing itself, which of course is not biblical <laughs> at all. Sexuality is a beautiful thing within the confines of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. But this, this idea kind of begins to grow, and it, and it leads to all of these different claims, even claims that, well, Jesus must not have come out through the birth canal, because that would kind of not make her virgin. So I bet there was some miraculous way that he came out. And um, you know, I bet, I bet Mary herself even was not conceived in sin. And so you have the development of this doctrine called the, anyone grew up with this? The Immaculate Conception. That, that Jesus was born, or that, excuse me, that Mary was born without the, stain of sin, without the stain of sin. And, and then you have, well, she was even assumed into heaven. Um, she's even at some places in, in some church traditions called, she, she's co-mediator and co-redeemer with Jesus. And you see how this shift from this beautiful, awesome thing, this unique virgin birth, this totally unique identity of this person, and what God was doing was culminating that, to this shift on the virginity being the importance. And you see how it gets off, how, how, how it moves into a totally different realm, how it's introducing concepts and ideas that, that, are, that are foreign to what these authors are trying to get us to see about how God has acted in history. And of course, the New Testament tells us that Mary had other children. Mark 6, 1 through 3, we read about the passage where Jesus is in the synagogue in his own hometown, and the people around him say, isn't this, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't these his sisters with us? So Jesus has several brothers and several unnamed sisters. Matthew 13, 53, you can also read there places where Mary's other children are, are identified. So this, this doesn't get, that's, that's not what's being taught here. That's not what we're affirming. Are you with me in this? So the purpose of these words, again, not to explain the biological origin, that's not, not the key thing, but rather it's to make these two central claims. The first one is that Jesus is utterly unique. And he's the culmination of all of history, of what God was doing in Israel's history. That, that Mary was fulfilling that, that final theme of the barren woman. But number two and last one, Jesus' birth was real. If you remember the last couple weeks, uh, Pastor Donnie, uh, two weeks ago, talked about, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, this guy named Marcion, right? Gnosticism, you remember that? We've kind of talked a little bit about this idea that one of the biggest threats to the early church was, was a threat to Jesus' actual real humanity, that he was flesh, bone, blood, fully human, okay? Truly human. That, that's what the early church was fighting for, trying to let people know that this was our true Savior. And so contrary to Marcion, 
this idea that he, he really is born, because see, here's the reality. Birth is a really messy thing, right? Any, any people here ever been in a birth room when that happens? I have four horrific stories I will tell you about sometime. Um, awesome, beautiful, miraculous, and awful. I mean, it's just messy. It is just messy, 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 right? And Jesus underwent that. The God of the universe said, I'm going to undergo that messiness right there. But birth is also, it's a sign of powerlessness, isn't it? I mean, I remember, if you've ever had, I remember with all four of my kids when they were newborns, just brand newborns, and I'm a whole, and you realize how utterly helpless they are. Like, they can't do anything for themselves, not a thing. And if you don't immediately take care of them and wrap, they're gonna, they're gonna die. If you don't take care of them immediately, and if they have breathing problems, if you're not helping them with that, if you're not doing every single thing for them, from eating to clothing to loving, to, they will die they're utterly powerless, totally dependent. And the God of the universe said, I'm going to undergo that. That's what Paul has in mind when he says in Philippians 2, 7, Jesus, who being in very nature the divine one, the one who spoke in our world, slept into existence, made himself nothing, made himself a fetus. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, oh, this is the worst part about being human, death. Obedient to death, even death on the cross. See, through the damp womb of a young Palestinian Jewish girl, God took his first step to identify himself with me and with you. That was the first step. He said, I'm going to fully tie myself to what it means to be human. And that first step of identifying himself was to step into this womb as this powerless being. And his last step of identifying himself with us wasn't the human birth, but it was the human death. Death on the cross. I read something this week that while I don't know if there's any theological significance to it, it's poetically beautiful. Is it okay to have things that are poetically beautiful even if there's no theological significance to it? It goes like this. At his death, just as Jesus was the one who was laid in an empty tomb in which no man had previously been laid, so he was born in a virgin's womb, the womb of a woman with whom no man has ever laid. See, here's, here's the crazy thing about this whole thing, is you going back to page three and then this theme. The idea that we're supposed, as we affirm, I believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, it affirms that God is a God who brings life out of non-life, out of dead trees, he brings seeds. And you know why that's so important? Because my life, and this is what I learned from this, this is this, is this learning, I don't have true life inside myself naturally on my own. I don't. Neither do you. You don't have true life inside you. 
That's what Jesus says when he's talking to Nicodemus. Remember this religious leader who loves God deeply? And he says, what must I do? And he goes, you have to be born again. I've got to go into my mother's womb? <laughs> no, no. You have to have true life inside you. And you can't generate it on your own. You, you can't get it on your own because it's not there. And the reason this is hopeful is because the greatest hope we have, we'll talk about this at the very end of our series, is resurrection. And this is proof, it's evidence, that though I don't have life inside myself naturally, in and of myself, that God brings life out of dead things. He's put life in us. And ultimately, every single one of us, we're going to die this side of eternity. But new creation awaits at the resurrection. And that's our hope. And that's what we declare. Remember Jesus said the words? He goes, hey guys, every time you do this, you do this thing right here. He said, you proclaim my death. That's a full identification with you and your humanity <laughs> in the past until I come again in the future. So we look forward to new creation. We look forward to full life that the one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the brokenness identifying himself with us, born of this, of this Virgin Mary, has captured. He wasn't just the first sinless man born. He was the first born of the resurrection. And that's what we hold on to, amen? So here's what I want us to do tonight over the next couple minutes during this song. Make your way to one of the stations around the room where we have the elements of communion and take it on your own. You can go back to your seat. You can take it there. You can find a spot in the room. But I would ask you to take a few moments and let this sink in, that God is the God who brings life out of death and that our hope is, is this resurrection life. And we know he can do it because he's been doing it all the way through history. Go ahead and take it on your own, and then we'll engage in worship at the end.